All right, this is Kevin from Shared Secrets. I have recently launched uh, my own security consultancy named RTX Security based in Minneapolis here and offering a full suite of cybersecurity advisory as well as application security services focused on testing, strategy, uh, all sorts of uh, support with for clients working on hard security problems. If you have anything that you'd like to uh, discuss, maybe there's some way that I can help you, uh, feel free to reach out at podcast at rtxsecurity.com. Thank you. No one knows my secrets, even if I told you. Dennis. Kev. We're back. Far too long. Yeah, you, you just used the word before we went hot here, and you said we're reinventing the podcast. Is this uh we got to figure out what this is because people are going to want to know, right? Are we rebooting? Are we reviving the podcast? Is this just a resumption of the podcast? All of these words start with R. Hmm. Is there another word that starts with R? Yeah. I don't care. Here's what happened. I want to tell people what happened. A year ago, you called me up and you said, Kevin, I'm not going to do the podcast anymore. And I said, Dennis, why are you not going to do the podcast? You said, this is the best cybersecurity podcast in the industry. We cannot give it away for free. You remember this conversation? I, vaguely, yes. You said without corporate, and you were strict. Like I was like, well, do you want to try to do a Patreon? I don't know. Money's tight. Everybody's got, you said, I don't care. We've got to monetize. And the way that you wanted to monetize at the time was corporate sponsorship. And we appro approached a major corporation. Mm, I, and they laughed is... in our faces. Now that is a true story, <laughs> right? They laughed at our faces and they said, we don't listen. We don't know what this is. We don't know who you are. We would like you to uh, delete your sent message to us <laughs> from your, your outbox. So that was a hard hit. And that really kind of bummed us out. And I think that was the, the last time we recorded. Hmm. Now, I've been on a mission and, you know, I've been listening to these other ostensibly great, they say great pots, you know, Darknet Diaries, right? Everybody's like, oh, Darknet Diaries is so good. It's fine. You know, Security Now, I think we mentioned in our Hackers podcast because the guy Steve Gibson was po probably the inspiration for the Gibson computer. Go back and listen to the Hackers episode. You'll see what kind of gold I'm talking about. And in fact... This is a weird one. I was like, well, Humans of InfoSec is pretty good. And you said, it's total crap. And it's it was weird because that's our good friend, Caroline, that does that. <laughs> I most certainly did and not This say. conversation, I think, was actually, we were doing it before we recorded the Caroline episode. And she said that she was actually listening in when you said that. And it was really hurtful. No, I, that's completely fabricated. People okay. don't, you know, you, you forget that like people that listen to this podcast may not know you and that you're joking. And now you're, you're throwing me under the bus. I mentioned, hey, I, you know, Gunnar Peterson, who's a friend of mine, has got this new great security insights podcast. Um, this was, you know, a year before it was released, and you said, you know what? No way it's going to be good. And I think, <laughs> I, I think that you've been proven wrong if you listen to the first six episodes of that. You know, people, but I agree with you. People also need our podcast mm. because yeah, mostly really. of this witter ban witty banter up front. You know, they can hear what it's like to be in a real high pressure work environment by yeah. the, the kind of, you know, energy we bring to the podcast. Yeah, totally not regretting resuming this podcast already after this 
you're burning all. Well, all you're not regretting it because <laughs> I got the corporate sponsorship. Oh, right. So, I mean, it's taken several months. You've been able to uh, basically acquire a major studio presence in Little Rock, Arkansas, mm-hmm. um, that you happen to live. It's so big you live in it as well. So <laughs> it's enabled that. Um, you know, I think that this was really the key factor that um, allowed your your lovely fiance to finally say yes. So, you know, you're now engaged because of the corporate sponsorship. Oh, um, I, I, I think this corporate sponsorship. You got a new job. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be hard to say that you could have gotten that new job without this podcast and with this corporate sp- sponsorship. Are you ready um, to reveal who the sponsor is? Yes. The sponsor is a thriving startup security consulting called RTX Security. It stands for Run the Experiment. Well, I'm so happy to have them on board uh, and be here and resuming this podcast, all thanks to the great people behind RTX Security. You should be happy because you've been advanced a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and RTX is brand new. They don't have a lot of money to invest in people. So I just want you to really settle in. And this is going to be a very dependable weekly podcast. You heard it here first every week. And if we don't have one every week, we'll probably lose our corporate sponsorship. <laughs> well, do you want to kind of explain uh, the story behind Run the Experiment and what that means? We got to work together again. You know, that's this is something that's entirely happened between the last recording. Our, we got to work together again from June until last month, right? Now these headhunters at RTX, they brought me over. It's been so great. But... Uh, you know, so we got to work together, and I mostly uh, w- was excited to have you over because people had begun to like really tease me, right, and throw mm. things like any time I would say the, the phrase to the, the same phrase more than once, I'd start getting grilled. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> T Bone in the office, these guys, they the guys and gals, they would not let it go. And apparently, I said run the experiment three times. And I couldn't live it down. And it became basically, um, yeah, heckling at me. But what I meant by it was applying a level of scientific method to cybersecurity. Okay. And like, so what does that look like, right? Like putting the the, uh, scientific method in the context well, of cybersecurity. I can imagine that you and many other people are asking this question because, and I'm, I'm dropping the shtick at this point, our industry has largely ignored this tool that's been around since, you know, do you have any history on the scientific method? I would need a refresher. I think uh, probably not since my science well, career days. Let's say invented by Aristotle. In like 340 Aristotle times, like 340 BC, I think. Perfected by Ibn al-Haytham. And that's like the Western pronunciation. Some is al-Hassan in the Dark Ages, right? So this thing has been around in the Dark Ages, since the Dark Ages, as a method of rigor to, to make observations or to prove theories, basically to drive the process of science, like what we think of as science. And I can imagine... Uh, 
what a 12 year old dentist probably went to a science fair brought science 13 you ever go to a science fair in your yeah i mean i participated in science fairs growing up well, let's use let's use Dennis's <laughs> science project as a mm-hmm. as a second driving force here. What was your your most successful science fair project? I think the most successful one uh was growing plants via hydroponics. Uh and oh, I, I meant I meant <laughs> academically. <laughs> Dennis <laughs> <laughs> this was this was why why one and I, I hypothesized that because I was feeding it this custom nutrient solution that they would okay. grow better. Okay, perfect. Normal. Step one: uh, asking a question about something you observed. By the way, the I'm going to use the list. So it was my favorite list that I found. It was on Science Buddies. What what? There's no more perfect. Uh, <laughs> place to learn about the scientific method for us than sciencebuddies.org maybe. <laughs> so asking a question about something you observe. So you observe that plants grow at different rates. Why is that? Papa, Papa, why why do plants grow? This is my, my impersonation of you. <laughs> is that a good one? You, did you uh, call your dad Papa? Uh, no, I did not call my dad Papa. He always wanted us to call him Pa, uh, because he just really liked like old Westerns and like all the young kids, you know, mm-hmm. in Westerns called their dad Pa. So, but we didn't, we Pa we never... Pa, <laughs> why do some plants grow? So was that, uh, okay. So you asked a question about something you observe. Step one. Now, your dad may or may not have a good answer to that. Step two doing some research to learn what's already known about the topic, right? And I think this is probably where most 7th or 8th grade science (laughs) project fail, (laughs) especially, you know, in a semi-pre-internet age. Uh, Internet was at its infancy when you were, I don't know what age you were when you were doing this project. I was probably Uh, like 10 or 11, but yes, it very much would have been in its infancy. Yeah, you probably had to fire up Microsoft Encarta at the time. On CD-ROM, perhaps? Did you have that? Um, I don't... I'm trying to remember if we ever had, like, the encyclopedia on CD-ROM, but we definitely had, uh, in our house, a full uh, encyclopedia Britannica. Ooh, Britannica. The mm-hmm. good stuff. Yeah. Not, you were at a world book family, right? <laughs> we were a Britannica family, too, and my dad was always like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the, the go-to one, but... You know, we had those world books at school, and they had more pictures, and they were like mm. all color. I mean, but like you know, when you f- purchase an encyclopedia as a family, at least my family, like that was it. You get you you buy it once, so we're just sort of like, okay, great. This is the state of the world as of 1991, and this is all you guys will ever know, right? Um, so you research something about that topic theoretically, or you basically jump to what was Dennis's. Next step three, constructing a hypothesis, a theory, right? Like this is the crux of science. Like if you can't formulate a strong hypothesis here, it can be very difficult to to gain meaningful information about the world, right? Yeah, and totally. You know, you need that to understand like, yeah, what you're going to do when you actually, to use your phrase, run the experiment, right? What so are you expecting? In- 
in you growing weed at school, which was terribly risky, this hydroponics weed lab that you had, what was your hypothesis? Uh, it was that uh, the plants that I grew via hydroponics would um, perform better, or I guess like grow taller and bigger and faster than just ones in traditional soil. Because, nice. because I'm, you know, giving them <clears throat> a custom brew of just the best stuff. Uh-huh. Is that, that's the name of the strain that resulted from this <laughs> custom brew? I'm trying to remember what the actual plants were. I think it was like poison ivy or something like that. I don't oh know. Oh my God. Not, Why are you trying to super breed not, poison ivy? Was this? Not, not poison. It was some kind of, of ivy or something, I think. I, I just, I don't, I don't honestly recall, but, okay. but it definitely was not. You know, I can just imagine your little display and you have a little uh, jam, you know, like a boom box on the table. And when the judges would come up, you would press the soundtrack, which, you know, is like, this plant is poison. <laughs> like you doing the dub over of that poison song. I mean, that's a level of showmanship that I just okay. did not possess. Now we're diving in, right? And it may, like, we should probably, in parallel, like, let's contextualize this in cybersecurity. Like, and we don't do this enough. We don't treat computer science like science. We don't treat cybersecurity like science. I mean, how often has the process, you know, you've described three phases of the process here, but how often has have we seen in reality basically you see some other company or you come to a new company and you don't have the tool you want. And then you just basically go through acquisition. You, you want that tool, right. And you pay for it and you deploy it and you start operating it. Right. At no point in there, did you ask a question about something you observe? Like in this case, you know, would this tool be helpful to us in, our, mm-hmm. <laughs> in this organization doing these things with our platform stacks, things like that. Do research to learn what's already known about the topic. Is this even the best tool for this job? How is the tool? You know, it's like, okay, well, I know something because I used it before. But you can see that, you know, very often <clears throat> we don't even get this far into the science, you know, into to treating something with a level of rigor around science. But here we're getting to construct a hypothesis. Now, this actually is usually about the impact of what we're trying to do on our security and security is a really multidimensional thing, right? So security could mean like how much harder are we to making an attack? Security could be like, are we, you know, what's our efficiency kind of cost to operate the security capability? Like there's a lot of ways that you might want to improve security at an organization or do something that's making security program better. But in this constructing a hypothesis plan, it really should include that, that impact. And you actually start to see, Dennis, parts of the scientific method here colliding with a lot of other um, formal metrics and measurement framework or goal setting frameworks. Like OKR is really kind of a version. So the objective and key results is really kind of a a version of the scientific method for mm-hmm. business that's very popular right now, right? Oh, yeah. But this this key point of constructing a hypothesis, like what would make a good hypothesis? So, do you have any thoughts on the on the properties of a good hypothesis in the in the context of of using it as a as a tool for cybersecurity? Well, I mean, like <clears throat> at a high level, just hey, if we do this thing, right, then we will 
be reducing our risk. Um, and, and reducing your risk can be like in a variety of different ways, right? We're like finding more, um, finding more vulnerabilities, um, or, you know, driving down, um, the frequency of incidents, things like that. Yeah. What I really liked about how the, how you phrase that is like each one of those ways was something measurable, testable, quantifiable, right? Like so-and-so is going to basically allow us to discover defects that we can't discover now or whatever it is. Like you're, you're building testability into a hypothesis, which is really, I think, you know, if, if there were going to be, and I've seen this part go wrong too, in, in which it's like, Hey, um, you know, I think if we buy this tool, you know, we'll reduce risk. But the measurability of it is in question. Certain areas and some of the areas that, you know, I've, I've gotten a little bit deeper on, you know, more recently, areas of like threat intelligence can be really hard to, to generate. I mean, not because there's not value there, um, but it can be one of the hardest areas, even with high value, to really start to quantify, make testable um, and, and kind of, or stuff that's incident related because it relies on, you know, adversarial pressure. Like, oh, if mm-hmm. we do this, we'll see less attacks. Well, we're, you know, that's kind of not necessarily an input variable. Um, so how is that going to manifest itself? And maybe there's so many other things that we can't control for maybe at the same time that we do this, it could have had an impact, but because something else happened, all our attacks went way up. Like there was a new type of of low hanging fruit bug or something like that. Mm-hmm. So really hard to construct a good hypothesis, but the key would be to probably relate it to things that you have at least a plan at this point that's test those things are testable, measurable, you know, quantifiable in some way so that you can you can kind of proceed in the next phase, which is devising and executing an experiment. So this is run the experiment you know, is kind of apply the scientific method, but this being the key part. Um, So what is running the experiment? Just the act of testing out your hypothesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I think of, of experiments, I, I think it's kind of doing the work, right? Like you want, you know, a lot of people wanted to just jump to this part. Like, I mean, it's not an experiment, but they wanted to like do something. So doing the experiment is doing something, but, it does need to hold up to a little bit more rigor, right? Because if we're going to basically end up in having a successful, you know, later phases, we have to do some things like control variables, right? How, you know, how often in the cybersecurity industry have you ever seen somebody actually maybe break out a series of changes into parts so that they could quantify the data at different stages. Yeah, n- not not typically. In fact, exceedingly I think like, rare. Yeah. And what's the problem when we don't do that, or what's the problem when we make? You know, we're always racing. You know, to get projects done fast, right? Like we always want to to beat our timelines or meet our timelines, or you know, and and you know, it can. I we do a ton of work in parallel, like, you know, like we're, if something's slow, it's, it's not unheard of for, so, you know, Oh, let's, let's put contractors on it or let's double that team's size or let's do all this to drive things faster. Right. So 
there there is a level of rigor that is kind of necessary in terms of of later on understanding what a capability is providing you know what's the value of something and, and what's the measurable outcomes of something by breaking it into phases like let's say that you are gonna you have a theory right so we're gonna construct a hypothesis that you know new targeted training on this new wave of uh, MFA smishing attacks that we've seen by a lot of companies recently. You know, let's target, let's train people on what those things look like, right? And you know, the rollout for that, you know, and then we even have to think about it. Well, what if maybe, um, you know, when we do that, what if? We're just not getting those same attacks. Like maybe those attacks go mm -hmm. away. We know we're getting them right now. So probably as part of a, a hypothesis that says targeted training is going to reduce these type of MFA things, you know, we might want to take an action to ensure that there's going to be some level of testable adversarial pressure out there. And, you know, there's any ideas on how we could do that? No, I guess we can set up test environments, if you will. Uh, so like have just you know that we are act we're trying to smish our own exactly run a run a controlled mm -hmm. right like so this is the scientific construct of a control we can control this by making sure that okay let's have a test harness which is like a social engineering campaign right so let's pick a random population of our organization and let's conduct this maybe even first, like let's get a baseline measurement. Let's conduct this right now so we can quantify the problem because, you know, it can be difficult even to just measure the adversarial pressure you're, you're in. So let's isolate this experiment from the real world smishing by conducting our own. And we'll, we'll focus on a sample population of people. And especially at large, large organizations where you can really spread this out, you have really great ways to sample the population for that control. So we randomly pick some people and then we implement, you know, um, basically then, you know, we, we repeat that cycle with a set of employees, staff, whatever the case may be, could be customers. And let's actually repeat that now that they've received the training, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in an experiment, you can actually, maybe you have multiple vendors or maybe you've got internally developed training and, or maybe you have an, uh, a video version versus a computer-based training click-through version. If you have a large enough population, you can actually maybe even start to experiment here with different curricula for that. So we could branch that out. Like uh, in your, how many was your... Your experiment that you ran in 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 school there related to hydroponics did you have just non-hydroponic versus hydroponic or did mm -hmm. you have different breeds of plants or you know like what was you know any any various um any variations there no it was just uh <clears throat> regular potted plants versus hydroponics but i guess yeah you know if we did your like what you're talking about you know i would have i guess tried out different nutrient solutions so there would have been sort of the potted plants as the control and then various like like you know Absolutely. solutions so we designed this theory to basically gather the data we want we want to know does training work and of the training that we can test which is the best like which works the most right because we're planning to implement something or not implement something if the data tells us that's the other part right is a lot of times 
we get to a point with the security capability where it's almost obvious that it's not providing value, but we've advocated it for it in a way where we just like, oh, I absolutely know this. If we do A, it's going to result in B. Like I know this to my core or something like that. We get so emotionally attached to those things that we never get away from our mistakes. Like, or And it's not even mistakes. It's just like, okay, well, that hypothesis proved not to be as true as we thought, right? Like the value there. Mm. And I'll tell you a concrete story about this. I used to work at a very big bank and, you know, the this was at a huge time for static analysis, right? Like Fortify was the king of uh, the the darling industry. And Fortify was a good product, like, and it, it certainly could find defects in code, but this bank, um, you know, they, we had no standard build processes or build environments. And all of the code around was like kind of, you know, it was almost all even the current stuff being implemented. It was implemented in a very, you know, s- fractured way mm. to get Fortify to be able to build and give us results about code was a very intensive process that had to be repeated. So it just took so long to or to onboard applications and, you know, the licensing of Fortify was like, Oh, you know, your bank has you know 20,000 developers or something. You know, I don't know what the number is, but it was based on a seat license of developers and code contributors. So the, you know, from day one, we're basically paying this, this super intense contract and we just could not move the bar fast enough on the onboarding process to result in really impactful thing. But there was a lot of egos attached to that. And mm. I, my own my own as well. Like I don't want to be the person that raises my hand and says, um, you know, this money could be better spent other ways because I can't get, you know, it this tool integrated in the environments fast enough, right? So just an example of in this whole thing, a lot of times we lose sight of like the science of it and, you know, the measuring the outcomes and doing stuff. And we often get lumped into maybe the political, and I've been, a, you know, I've been on every side of this question. I've challenged things in place that I thought maybe weren't, you know, super high value. Um, but I've also been, you know, a uh, knowing that something even maybe, or, or having instincts that something and not going out and, and, and changing direction because these frameworks were missing. Like there was not data there that I could point to and say, okay, yeah, along the step of the way, if we get to this point and it's not doing it, we need to, to go a different direction. So we absolutely need to build that into, you know, the, the first thing we, we do here is not to basically obligate ourselves to, you know, a, a full term contract commitment before we've proven anything to ourselves. Right. So this, this is like really powerful stuff, especially in like pilot phases for expensive tooling, but Conversely, could be used for even daily work, right? But we'll we'll get to that later, uh, a little bit on scaling. So constructing a hypothesis and and experimenting to test. I think if I were going to give anybody like secret sauce to the experiment, is break up the experiment enough that you know those controls are limited, so that multiple things aren't changing at the same time, and that you have enough time in between those changes to gain something important about the observability. 
you're somebody who's worked a lot on maybe the observability piece on this, right? You've put a lot of energy into uh, metrics and measurement lately. Any any thoughts on good measurements, bad measurements, good metrics, bad metrics? Like, what's that journey been like for you as somebody who went from having a lot of hypotheses as a, hypotheses as a consultant, right? As a consultant, you're almost always just like, hey, I think if you do this, it's going to result in this. But then flipping over and, and being a part of a, a, a program or driving your, your own program, you're in a different boat, right? Like <laughs> it's yeah. no longer a hypothesis. It's the full experiment. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, I think one useful thing uh, for sure that, that I had found was it's very easy to just start like just collecting numbers, right? You're like, we're running the experiment and you're like, okay, well, how are we going to tell if we're going to do a good job? And you're like, okay, well, let's just like create a whole bunch of graphs, right? And that's exactly where I went to first. Um, and through some like good discussions with you and getting feedback, it's like, okay, well, what's the point of this graph? And like that, that was just a, such a meaningful question to ask because you're like, oh yeah, you know, like, I don't know. I just figured we'd want to look at that. And then you're like, okay, well, why? Like, what, what are you trying to show me with this? And what I realized uh, by sort of asking that challenging question is, um, well, like, I was just putting things on there to have them instead of like, okay, this is, here is the meaning behind it. Um, and for the ones that ended up like dropping because just wasn't very useful, you know, if it's just like, okay, this line that you're showing me, this is just always going to go up, right? Like it doesn't matter if we're doing a good job or a bad job, like just over time, this line is just always going to go up. So it's not really sh like, it's not proving anything. Um, so I think the big takeaway for me is probably like less is more. Uh, you'll start out with a bunch of like pictures on what you think is going to tell you something. Um, but probably only about like, I don't know, right, from my initial draft of like a dashboard to the final version of it, we really chopped off about, you know, 70 to 80% of the pictures because it was like these two things are the most meaningful way that you're going to be able to, to tell me if you're doing a good job or not, or the experiment is doing yeah. what you thought. I, maybe you could jump to that, but I, I would say like that visualization and discovery learning of like, of actually interpreting a visualization, right? Which when I look at any type of metrics chart or God forbid a, uh, a stoplight, <laughs> stoplight, you know, mm -hmm. like, of, oh, this thing is green this week. That's really good. I instinctively want to know how it's calculated so that I can understand how it relates. Otherwise, I'm just, I'm riding along, right? Which I, you know, so I, uh, and I'm sure this is frustrating for some people that I've <laughs> worked with, is I just always want to know the math behind it. And then I can test, I can do a little bit of the the thinking in my head to say, like you you mentioned, okay, well, you know, we're, if we're never, if this thing is basically just like a accumulator, meaning like, over time, these are going to happen and we don't really have maybe, you know, maybe it's okay, well, this is, you know, the integral of what the, the metric we want, right? Meaning like, okay, this is, you know, we actually want to focus not so much on it accumulating to different points of accumulation, but actually how fast it's accumulating. So if it's accelerating or decelerating, um, you know, that's actually the more meaningful mm -hmm. direct, which, you know, is, is, is it something, you know, a concept from 
you know, math class a couple of years after little Den Den was, was over at uh, the science fair with his uh, plants. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he was sitting in calc class learning about integrals and deliverables. Also never used in, in cybersecurity for the most part, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of what we're talking about here in terms of trend and you know, the same thing as trends. Um, trends are, are basically acceleration and deceleration of, of a curve that we're looking at. Um, so really good point, but I, I just wanted to comment, like, it's hard to jump to knowing exactly what's going to, so I actually like that discovery method and I'm sorry if I was, uh, you know, I'm sure we had a very fun conversation of just, uh, you know, uh, kicking it like we usually do at the top of these calls about your metrics. Um, but you know, it's doing something or looking at something visually, even if you don't know if it's, if it's meaningful and then working through like, well, why or why not? Or, you know, what would be the real world types of things and how would they manifest on this chart is incredibly good skill. Um, and something that I don't really see much of, like I've seen a lot of people's metrics and quite often I can look at something that's more, more so a count or a number and, the like go-to example of this in AppSec is like number of open vulnerabilities currently as like a, and, and I'm supposed to derive some sort of health of the program around it. I have no way to do that. I've got, you know, we've been doing this a long time. I think I just tipped 26 years maybe, <laughs> but I cannot tell you based on how many open issues you have, how good your software security program mm-hmm. is. Because what if it were zero? Could be zero because you just can't find the vulnerabilities. <laughs> you, maybe you have no defect discovery capabilities. It's going to be zero. Or you could have an incredibly rigorous program or something like that, and, and it's zero because everything that you can think of a way to detect, you've detected and remediated. And even that doesn't tell you necessarily. Like you still have to, to fill in the picture with more. So, um, yeah, I guess we're we're kind of diving into step five here a little bit, but in in building the metrics, I think you hit some really good criteria there, um, and that is almost always an evolution. And I think hopefully our corporate sponsor is able to generate maybe some some additional material soon about you know maybe some consistent metrics that are reasonable. Like I don't know, um, one of the ones that that come to mind in the DevOps place is, you know, mean time to remediate, right? Like how long does it take us to fix stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's a pretty good common metric that that's testable. I do think I've seen errors in the way it's calculated a lot. So, that, you know, like, just like we write software with bugs, we can write um, metrics with bugs. So I've seen like the timing of, you know, if an issue is open and it being obscured from the calculation, like let's say we want to, okay, every we're going to calculate this metric across all of our closed issues. Well, you could have open issues that are very old that aren't going to reflect in that metric until they're closed out. So I've seen like, you know, jumps, huge spikes in the MTTR when some type of problem was finally solved. And again, if I'm interpreting that visually, I would say, well, this program got a lot worse. But in the reality is you were able to f- solve some systemic problem that had these like super old issues. So maybe it's even an improvement in your program, right? Makes sense? Makes sense to me. <clears throat> and uh, like with regards to that too, right? It's always good to sort of def- like try to uh, define, well, what is good, right? Like in our mean time to remediation, if we see this value, is that what we consider good? And if it's like 
I think just another useful thing is, okay, so uh, with regards to any of these like graphs, right? All right, if it's going up, is that bad? Um, and then like trying to understand, okay, well, is it bad necessarily if it goes up? Well, yes, but maybe not in this one case and trying to figure out, okay, well, how can we try to uh, uh, like, how can, what other indicators do you have to tell you that if it's going up, it's just not for some sort of, it's not a, it's for one of those caveats, right? It's like not necessarily bad. Um, so you can try to figure out, okay, is there a, a complementary visualization that needs to be to be included so that we can really make sense of what's happening. Absolutely. Dennis. And the, what is good thing is, is a really, I mean, it's a complicated thing, but I also have, would it shock you to know that I have some advice on this? (laughs) It would not shock me in the least. One thing that, that I've seen folks, you know, both you and I, and a lot of other folks run into is as soon as we're, we get the tools, the observability into a thing, it becomes immediately apparent that maybe our target, like, you know, the way that we plan in business is to set, and even sometimes we'll do this as, you know, I mentioned that like, you know, um, OKR, for instance, is kind of a version on the assignment, like our objective, we might have set an objective to say, I want X coverage. But it wasn't until we actually had the observability and the measurement, right, to support the experiment that we realized that that number was totally wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, oh, okay. And, and like, rather than like changing the scope of what we mean, like, you know, I want X percentage of a static analysis tool to be processed, right? But you look at the languages the tool supports, the languages in your code base, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things like that maybe it's not going to be doable. So that's one thing, is that this is also a good time, probably once you get that initial baseline observability and establish your controls, to gut check your goals a little bit. Um, if you are going to be you know, scored or you know, as, as, a, as a business process, might make sense here to just, you know, to, to manage that and to have traceability. And, and it's a really great, it's, it's a much easier conversation than people might think when you come with the data and you have that to say, okay, this is why we're going to make an adjustment here. The second thing is, you know, if I borrowed something a little bit from the DevOps theory of, of metrics and measurement, it's that we don't always want to be so deterministic around what's good as long as we can get better. Like if we've got something that consistently is going to get better and we're going to evolve and we take that super seriously, it'll get good pretty quick. And conversely, if we get something good and it stops getting better, the threats and pressure and platform aging and all that stuff will make it bad very quick too. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of bad AppSec programs that basically went from zero to 60, got good, but then said, we're good, and they stopped evolving. And I've seen a lot of you know, relatively small programs get awesome because people showed up and they kept making it better and better over a very long length of time. Or, or you know, just like that consistency. It's like, you know, I I've been on a I've been on a good diet uh consistency thing lately. That's that was really actually only broken when I went to visit you in Little Rock, Dennis. Um, <laughs> but you know, like it's not about 
losing 10 pounds in a week, right? Like it's about showing up in, in following the parameters of the diet consistently, you know, as, as a lifestyle. And the same is true for, for this progress. So we're, we're into kind of that measurability and experiment thing, but you know, a, a notion about like what, what makes, if you can see that something is impacting something in a positive intended way, it's probably worth investing more time in that experiment and keep forward and, and keep going. So, um, so metrics definition, observability, and running the experiment are really close in heart. Um, and we've, we're already in kind of an analyzing the data from the experiment and drawing conclusions. Or in our case, we're making decisions. Are we going to leave this capability alone? Are we going to invest more in the capability based on it being promising? Um, what was the uh, observed results or the observations made about you growing ganja in eighth grade? <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember. I, I honestly, I think, <clears throat> I think I poisoned all those plants via like whatever the solution was, trying to uh, make it too high test. Um, so too high? Great. Did you say? <laughs> no, too high test, like gasoline. You know, like just trying to make it too supercharged. Uh, I think it, 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 it just the opposite of what I expected happened, right? Trying to feed them this ultra super high percentage nutrient solution. Ah, so your data kind of indicated, well, at least not superficially, hydroponic kills plants. <laughs> <laughs> In my case, yes. And that actually, so how, what grade did you get on this? I actually placed in the thing, I know, I, you're I a great remember. student. I knew that they would, they but would not like it wasn't encouraging like encouraging you. Yeah, it wasn't like a blue ribbon or anything like but that. But in order to place, I bet that you were able to determine something about your journey to date, right? Like, which was maybe that your experiment was flawed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I think I must have had some sort of good re explanation for what I would have done differently, or yeah, you know, why what I thought what happened. Yeah, exactly. But like it's what you said was flawed. But that's, I mean, I, I, we had so much to learn from from a young dentist, right? Because our experiments are flawed every day. We don't control for variables, or we people don't actually take the training because you know it was a video and they signed a piece of paper, but they never watched the video, right? Like, or you know, like experiments can be flawed in ways mm -hmm. that invalidate our ability to test our hypothesis and we could implement the tool wrong, right? Like, I mean, we could, um, and maybe the, the, the tool doesn't have any signatures that apply. It doesn't understand some, uh, framework we're using, right? Like, Oh, it doesn't really can't parse vulnerabilities with struts that well. And we're a big strut shop or whatever the, the case is. Right. So at that point, you know, we could refactor. I mean, that could be a true thing. I mean, essentially we could say, hydroponics kills plants at that phase for our cybersecurity program. And we can just choose to focus our energy resources on some other approach to the, to that problem or some other approach. This is also the greatest thing about working in security is there's no shortage of problems to work on. <laughs> like, and there's a lot of ways to improve a program. So pivoting from one defects discovery method mechanism, for instance, in the AppSec space to another um, maybe you don't have any design coverage, so maybe we could actually find some design flaws that you aren't thinking about, right? Like 
you know, once we know that something is, uh, or, or if we get stuck in a place and we are not able to revise our experiment in a way to judge it, there's more stuff for, for us to work on that, you know, right. Like that's a great part about cybersecurity. It's also the worst part about cybersecurity because, <laughs> you know, our, our risks are, are vast in, in a lot of different ways. Yes. The never, un never ending onslaught of problems. Yeah. So at this point, and this is why I picked sciencebuddies.org. I like, I don't, it sounds like a, a movie with puppy dogs in it, but communicating the results to others. This is, this is basically broken, right? Like telling people that your program is good with data and traceability and realism. I mean, when it happens, it generally happens in more of a very superficial, if not meaningless way. Like, oh, I'll show you my green light chart that says I'm on time with my program or I've done X things. And, but like being able to have that dashboard that says, here's how we're, here's how our time to fix things is changing, or here's how our ability to discover this type of flaw is changing, or, you know, here's the impact of our training on, um, you know, these, these six series of runs on, on test cases. And it turns out training B is the best. So let's invest that, you know, like that type of stuff is if you unlock it will be a superpower for, for, for your, any type of security program you're building or any type of security effort you're, you're curating. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that's the most important part. Cause it's like, do you actually understand and can you make sense of what happened in your experiment, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's the best way just like, if you can't explain it to somebody like they're five years old, uh, you know, like maybe, maybe you don't have the best grasp of what actually occurred. Yeah. So let's then contrast a little bit with things that happen in reality. You go to a meeting and like, oh, we're going to talk about some wins today. We deployed this tool. That's what you hear. We've got this tool working for us. Or we completed this project. What's missing? Did it have the impact that you thought it was going to have? Or what was the benefit of the Yeah, the experiment's missing, <laughs> right? Or the, you know, and we're, if, if at best, we might be measuring how fast we did something, <laughs> which I guess is, is maybe a testable thing of like our, our, our output in some way uh, or something like that, or in the number of hours we're willing to make people work. But yeah, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like project completion as success factors when I'm looking at a, at a program, even if it's a well-devised plan, it's not bad. And in fact, I think it's meaningful to have in that same dashboard you mentioned. And I think it's meaningful because it's another control in the experiment to say, well, our data isn't changing yet because our implementation is blocked. And at that point, as a leader or somebody like that, the, the only reason that we're using that is to come in and say, oh, is there any way I can help you unblock it so we can get further in the experiment, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. that's your, your um, biology teacher coming to you and saying, hey, Dennis, I noticed that all your plants are, are dead. You know, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like unlocking so that you can progress. So, and visualization is great for that too, right? Like, pro, you know, taking, a, you know, a project and a project management tool and just having a weekly percentage of, of tasks completed there, you know, and it can go up or down. If it goes up, work is 
progressing along. Maybe it goes down because a new offshoot project has to get completed in order as a predecessor that we didn't think about before. That's good to know. So it's a great tool for management and getting support and making sure that things are are kind of, you know, that the experiment is happening, but doesn't really tell us anything about our security program, like in and of itself, yeah. like, that we did so many projects or, or whatever. Um, so I don't, I don't like it. I would never go to show somebody my program is working or that we did a bunch of work quantitatively. I would want to go and talk about the impacts that my program had more scientifically. But now we've also been thinking about this maybe in a grand scheme of, hey, these are huge projects. But I'm going to maybe push that further to say this is also just a great problem-solving approach, like in daily tasks, right? So, man, you know, this, this customer is reporting that something happened, you know, to their account or this, you know, whatever the case may be, right? Like, well, let's go in and start analyzing that situation in a scientific way wherever we can, bringing in the testing and experimentation or repeatability. Incident response. This is a huge part of incident response. So many incidents that I've seen, been a part of at, in 25 years, like I became a security guy during an incident in 1998. And a lot of ways in which people get derailed in an incident is making an assumption. And rather than make an assumption, you treat that assumption as a hypothesis and you validate it so that you can use a version of that assumption as more factual and build upon it in an incident response. So I really like running experiments. If you uh, you can write letters to uh, my mom in New Hampshire. I'm sure she'd love reading them, complaining about my, because, you know, she <laughs> she was a, a scientist and this is the stuff that, you know, if if I asked my mom any question, she didn't answer the question. She made a mess in the kitchen, you know, for six Six of these steps, trying to uh, to to prove to me in some way that that what what it was true instead of just answering my question. So um, that was really powerful uh, for me, and I brought that immediate. I was always, you know, in my problem solving approach, getting more data about a pro an unknown problem and and gathering that observation, and then you know, and then vetting. A lot of times, if you have a bunch of data, you can run experiments retroactively, right? Oh, I think implementing this type of rule would would be impactful. Well, you can maybe simulate that rule back in time against your logs or netflows or something like that, right? So you can actually run experiments in computers sometimes with a bit of a time machine element that's super powerful too. Yeah, yeah, like you said, as long as you've got like that data, you can just sort of run it through uh, to try retroactively uh, see <clears throat> uh, maybe if there is like other variables at play. Awesome. Well, you ran me over the coals. This has to be a one hour podcast from now on. Otherwise you're going to ask for more corporate sponsorship. And I don't know how, how the RTX relationship is going to survive that. <laughs> no, this is great. Dennis, this is fun. We've made the, the hard commitment uh, to get these out. And if I have to delay releasing this episode so that we bank a couple more, have a little safety net there, I'll do it. <laughs> but uh, thank you for for sticking with me. And I love you too. Bye. I love you too, Kev. All right. Um, bye. Talk to you soon. No one knows my secret.